Good evening, everyone. My name is Eva, and I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> I was waiting for that. Um, okay. It's great to be here, and it's it's so good to be amongst the living. And I um, I don't know. I just I love these kinds of gatherings because it's just you know when I look out and I see you all, and I just I just think. God, you know, we really wear sobriety really well, you know, and um, it's just really neat. And um, I'm just always amazed that I'm sober. I, you know, it's just so wonderful to be sober. And, you know, it's the best thing that ever happened to me, really. And um, I hope that if you're you're new, you stick around long enough to know what I'm talking about. And uh, it's an incredible journey. It's an awesome journey. And um, I'm so glad I didn't have to miss it, you know. I, I just am really glad I didn't have to miss it. I'm supposed to share in a, in a general way what it was like, what happened, and what it's like today. And hopefully I'll get sober tonight and not get too caught up in, in uh, you know, way back then. Um but I always like to start from the beginning, and I always share that uh, I, I really believe I was born in, in a very, very bad mood. And uh, certainly nothing that a drink couldn't have fixed. But, you know, I don't know what that is. Maybe it's, it's the depression that I have, uh, that I've had a long time. Uh, I don't know what, what it is, except that um, all I know is when you pull out the family albums, and you see, uh, I had three sisters and my parents, of course, and, uh, when you look at the family pictures, you know, you know, everyone's smiling, and I'm the only one in the family that has this very intense look, like just this miserable look, like, you know, I didn't want to be there. And, um, and those are all the pictures. I really clearly do not look like a happy camper. And, uh, but anyway, um, you know, I grew up in a really, let's just say my parents did, um, really were wonderful parents. And, uh, you know, I really grew up with a very, very tight family. Um, very, very close. And, uh, I, um, but I always felt different. I always felt like, you know, I'd been adopted or I didn't belong or something wasn't quite right. And, I think some of it has to do with that I was uh, born and raised in Berkeley, California, which is in Northern California, in a university community. Uh, we lived in an upper middle class Jewish neighborhood. And uh, my father was from Guatemala. My mother was from El Salvador. We were Hispanic. We spoke Spanish. Everyone else spoke English. But... Uh, we were very bilingual, and um, it was very, very strange back then. And uh, it seemed like everybody ate different food than we ate, drove different kinds of cars, or you know, uh, listened to different, uh, you know, different music. Because I grew up around a lot of Tito Puentes and Eddie Palmier and, and wonderful salsa and Latin music. And and um, but I don't know, from very early on, all I know is that I didn't quite feel like I belonged. And my first geographic was uh, in kindergarten. And uh, one day, 
in kindergarten you went half day and then you went home. And uh, back then, I don't know if it's like that now, but I remember it was, I was in school in the morning and at lunchtime, I, you know, I, I remember what the street looks like. I remember the traffic boards. I can describe everything about that intersection, everything. I'm standing there and, and the, you know, the traffic boy has to stop and there's this girl standing next to me and she was in my kindergarten class and I remember very distinctly, like it was yesterday, her turning to me and saying, what are you doing? Where are you going? And I said, well, I'm going home. And she said, why don't you come to my house and, and we'll play this afternoon? And I said, sure. And I went off with this little girl, not thinking that, you know, you know, my, I would worry my, you know, I wasn't going to show up at home and somebody would get worried. But I went off with her and, and it was like, that sounded like such a great idea. I'll never forget it. And I remember going up to her house and they lived at the top of this hill and it was this beautiful white house. And, and I remember the housekeeper made us lunch and she had this big room and all these toys and everything. And I remember very distinctly thinking to myself, this is it. I'm going to stay here forever. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, it's really interesting because, like, there really wasn't anything to complain about my home. Now that I look, think back on it, we had a big, beautiful home, um, you know, but there was one thing in that house that, that, that was a little, um, well, what can I say? My father was a, a periodic drinker. I, I don't, I don't know whether he was an alcoholic or because I, all I know is I'm an alcoholic. But he would drink occasionally and when he would drink, he would go on these benders for days and he would get very, very violent. And there was a lot of violence in my home growing up. And all I remember was that it, it was not a pretty picture, and it was very frightening, and we were very terrified a lot of the time in that house. But those things never happened when my father was sober. But when he got drunk, all hell broke loose. And, but I, you know, I, I can look back and I realize that, but as a child, I never really you know, knew what was going on, except that I don't think, I, I thought that no one else experienced that except us. And maybe that's why I wanted to leave. I don't know. It doesn't really matter now. But growing up, you know, I remember my father used to have these parties because we had a big house. It was three stories and uh, he built a bar on each floor. <laughs> And and the family from San Francisco used to drive over to our house about once a month, and he would have these weekend parties. And But they were always exciting. I mean, I remember we would get so excited because our cousins would come over, our relatives would come over, there would be music playing, people would be laughing, and the women would be in the kitchen cooking, and then the men would start drinking. And But by the end of the weekend, all I know was that, you know, either the police would come by and kind of quiet things down, or a fight would break out, or my father would kick everyone out of the house. And all I remember was Monday morning, the Monday morning after these parties, it was always very still in the house. And, um, but I remember very young and when I finally realized that that 
it was happened when my father was drinking that the violence would happen and all those horrible things that would happen to us. In my early preteens, I told myself, I'm not going to drink. And and as much as I love my father, I said, I'm not going to drink like that. And if I if I and I also started to resent my mother because I couldn't I could not accept the fact that she would not leave my dad, you know, during those times that that we had to experience those things. But uh, anyway, I started drinking when I was in high school. I had decided that I really wanted to uh, be in the in crowd, and and part of being in the in crowd in the high school that I went to, I went to a all girls private Catholic school, and uh, we all did, all my sisters did, and um, part of being in the in crowd was to um, go out on the weekends to the drive-in theaters, and uh, I remember this weekend being asked by the in crowd to go out, and I was so excited, and uh, and I had heard that there was going to be some drinking, and I remember being picked up. And going off, I got permission to go out, you know, with a curfew. And then I, I went out, and I remember sitting in the car, and somebody handed me packets of juicy fruit gum and saying, if you chew a lot of this, the beer won't taste so bad. <laughs> and uh, and we went up to this panoramic place just behind up, up behind where we lived. And we were up there, and all these cars pulled up, and then suddenly all these trunk lids opened up, and all these kegs and cases of beer, and there were, you know, all kinds of kids from all the different high schools and everything, and people were smoking and drinking, and I was, I felt so strange. I felt like I didn't fit, I didn't belong, um, you know, all those feelings of inadequacy, and, and, and just like, oh, I'm just, this isn't for me, or, you know, I'm just too strange and but then somebody handed me a beer as I'm chewing a mouthful of juicy fruit and and I and I remember drinking that beer and what happened was I didn't I remember I didn't like the taste that much but once that beer went down I had another sip I forced it down and all I remember was the magic boom that was it I felt so good I felt so alive I really felt like I had finally arrived, like for the first time in my life, things were very light. They weren't intense anymore. And I had a blast. And I drank and I drank and I drank. I didn't stop at that first beer. I didn't stop at the second beer. I kept going. And my head was the one that was leaning out of the window on the way home. And... uh you know, and I remember going up to the house and everything and, and just, you know, and passing out and being hung over the next day. And, and But all I remember was, God, I can't wait till we do this again, you know. And from the very beginning, you know, it was really interesting. When you look at my high school year, yearbook, it really does say throughout all the pages, they called me the lush. You know, I just drank more than all my girlfriends. What could I say? I could not stop. Once I had that alcohol in me, I didn't, you know, there was, there was just no stopping me. And, um, but, you know, I got through high school, and it's really interesting. I, I'm, um, I grew up in the 60s. I'm, I'm a, I was a hippie. And how many hippies, how many ex-hippies or... <laughs> 
Well, there it was, the mid-60s, and my mother used to go, my mother and her friend used to go to this wonderful uh, coffee shop uh, by the university. And um, and I remember going there once with her, and um, I remember walking down the street, and and there I was, like, there I was, like, I was president of the pep club, I was the head cheerleader, I was very outgoing in school, very, you know, I was into people-pleasing and everything, and I was drinking also along the way. But there I am on the street, and I noticed these people, and they were all wearing black, and they had beards, and and mustaches, and long hair, and some some of them would be passed out on the street, nodding out, and I'd go, wow, look at this. This is really cool. <laughs> and and I said to myself, something just caught my attention, and I thought, God, they seem so deep and intense, and, you know, that's what I want to be. And And so there I am. I'm back in school, and I remember looking around the school, and I said, but none of us look like that, you know. But there was this one girl in my class, and her name was Maureen. And Maureen, I knew, had a sister that was a real bona fide beatnik. And uh, Maureen wore handmade leather bags and fringe on her jackets and long hair, and I heard she smoked pot, you know. And so I got to befriend Maureen because Maureen had no friends. And she would sit in the back and she would be reading all these very intense, you know, books. And um, so I befriended her. And the next thing I know is we'd after school, we'd hike up our skirts and we'd go off. And then she, in the trunk, she'd have a change of clothes and we'd go off to Haight-Ashbury. And... Uh, it was very interesting. On the weekends, I used to tell my parents that I was spending the night at her house, and then she would tell her parents, you know, that that she was staying at my house. Her her father owned a, a pharmacy, and that was really wonderful because <laughs> then then we had then we had our whatever for the weekend. But the interesting thing was, I wasn't into drugs or anything. I was really into the wine, and one of the reasons that I started to really you know, that I really didn't care too much for the drugs because I didn't really like the way they made me feel. I, I preferred booze. It worked for me. People don't die from booze, but people die from overdosing from drugs, you know, and people get weird on drugs, and, and booze is what I chose. And, and you know, I could sit here for hours and tell you wonderful stories about the 60s and being there at a lot of the rock concerts, being there in the park, panhandling, hitchhiking, all that wonderful stuff that happened in the 60s. But a lot of it I don't remember. <laughs> and, um, and so, you know, I made it through high school, and I remember the nuns, because I did go to parochial school, just you know, wondering what happened to Eva. I mean, I was top of the class. I I was one of those that never had to study but could still pull straight A's, you know. I remember it used to drive my sisters nuts, you know, because I never had to study. I could just go through books real quick and, and always do really good. So I kind of looked good on paper. And um, then I remember high school and 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 I was... Not drinking every day, but a lot on the weekends. And I remember 
for the summer, I hitchhiked to New York with a friend that I met on the street. He had long white hair, and 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 we decided we were going to go to the village, you know, and and you know to the heart of the the movement, you know, the movement there. And and uh, so we went off, and that summer I spent in in the village, and it was very exciting. We were like the stars because we were the hippies from Haight Ashbury, and you know, and it was really exciting and. We met all kinds of people, and then it was time to come home, and I drank through that whole experience. And I remember coming home, and um, then it was time to go to start college. And I really struggled to get it together, because by that time, I, I, I would drink a lot, you know. But I wasn't drinking every day. It was just that once I started drinking on the weekends, it was like I would just go on these binges. And... Uh, and I went, I started school and was in and out of school. I mean, I could really hardly hold it together. I was very restless, just, you know, full of discontent. And, um, and then something happened, uh, that changed my life. I got pregnant. And at that point, it was the, uh, early 70s where, um, if you lived the kind of lifestyle I lived and, and hung out with, with the people I, it was very women's lib to be single and to 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 have a child and you didn't need to be married that the you know your your friends would support you and you know and it just seemed like the right thing to do and and it was really interesting because a lot of people said oh you're going to have such a beautiful child and you know and and um and so um when I got pregnant, I decided that I wasn't going to drink and I was going to really take care of my body and I was going to be very natural. And I got very, very healthy. And that's about the only time up until I got sober that I think I really maintained some sobriety for about eight months, seven, eight months. I ate well. I exercised. I really took care of myself. And I still was going to school. And then... One, you know, after, towards the end, what happened is, is that I, uh, uh, I went into labor. It was in the early afternoon. I called my friends in San Francisco. The word got out that, you know, it was time. Eva was going to have a child. And, and I remember people coming over to the house. I, I was living in this wonderful Victorian house. I had roommates and it was very exciting and, and, uh, my midwife came over, and one of my friends brought me a bottle of Cavassier and said, have a couple of these, you know, a couple of shots, and, and uh, it'll make you feel better. And uh, But I couldn't just have a couple of shots. I ended up drinking and drinking and drinking. I didn't stop. And all I remember was that the midwife took me to the hospital because it wasn't looking like things were, were happening the way they should. And she dropped me off at the hospital. And she turned to me and she said, you know, you really need help. And, you know, you're basically she just called me a drunk. And uh, I went into the hospital and I had, you know, thank God my everything was okay. I had my daughter. And I really meant to start over. I really was going to give it my best. You know, I was really going to get back into school. I was going to really raise this child and do it right. And, you know, for years I was in and out of school and, and just, you know, it, it was just, I, it's alcoholism. 
It's just alcoholism. And I even remember one day when, when my daughter was very, very young, um, I put her in the car and it was just before, it was finals week or something. Yeah, there was, it was midterms. And, and I remember going to the school and I remember going to the professor's office and saying, I, you know, I was in a panic. I had drank for two days. Impending doom was on me, and I could not go on any longer. I panicked. I froze. I didn't know what to do. And I remember going to his office and saying, I can't go through with this. And I remember the look on his face. He was such a wonderful teacher. And he said, Eva, what is wrong? What can you, you've, you just, you're doing so well. What can I do to help you? And I looked at him and I said, I have to get out of here. And I did another geographic. I, by that time, I, I took my daughter and I left and I figured I just need to leave. And I left and I drove up north and I just stayed in different communes and just floated around. And, um, and then I met him and fell in love with him. And it was wonderful because he was a drug addict, so he didn't bother me about my booze, and I didn't really give him a hard time about his pot and his cocaine. And uh, we lived together. I, I was very enterprising, and I and I started a, a business that ended up being very, very, very successful. And the next thing I know is. There we are living on in this big house on top of this valley in Sonoma County, and we have and I have this factory in Marin County, and you know and life is looking really really good, you know, and but I'm drinking more and more and more, and um, you know you know the story. I lost it. I lost it. I mean I lost everything, and the next thing you know. And this is like, when I look back at this, you know, one minute there we are, you know, with everything, you know, the home, the, everything, and, and the wonderful house, and, and everything's looking good. And then the next minute I'm living in, an, in, a, in a milk truck, in an abandoned milk truck, you know. I'm living like a gypsy again. And, you know, that's the story of how it went and how it spiraled. And what happened was is... Um, my um, um, my partner had had was starting to to question me about my drinking. You know, Eva, you're drinking too much. And Eva, when are you gonna you know taper down? Uh, and we'd been talking. We'd been together almost ten years, and and finally it was time to get married. And my daughter was nine, ten, and. Um, and I, we were going to do it. We were going to get married because we decided we were going to spend the rest of our lives together and finally we should do it and everything. But the one thing he said to me was, Eva, you've got to do something about your drinking. You know, if we're going to go through this and, you know, I, and I remember thinking to myself, how dare he talk about my drinking? And I severed that relationship. I absolutely chose the bottle over that relationship, and he left. And um, and I said, fine, it's just me and my daughter. And, you know, once again, I went off, and I, there I am with this daughter, and and I'm drinking. 
and I'm drinking every day, and I'm drinking every moment. There's a drink. There's a drink in the car. When I would pick up my daughter at school, there was always a drink in the car. My daughter remembers, you know, the beer cans in the back, you know, the cooler in the back with the bottles, you know, always drinking. And I started to surround myself with people that drank like I, I did. I also started to feel very ashamed of the type of parent I was. And I started to drink more to get rid of that shame and that remorse. I also started to get those feelings of impending doom, like any minute now, it's all going to crash and fall. And I just, I couldn't handle it anymore. And one day I realized that I needed to leave the town I was in. It was the town I was living in. And I was beginning to have these hallucinations and things. I really believed that something horrible was going to happen and that people were out to get me. And I remember taking my daughter after she got home from school and getting in the car and leaving. I just drove off. And I went to my sister's house. And my sister was the sister that had the perfect house, the perfect husband, the perfect car, the perfect pool, the perfect dog, you know, everything, you know. And um, and I resented her, you know. And and there we showed up. And, and she and her husband, they thank God, they took us in. And they fed us and they, you know, it, it was just fine, you know, with them. And uh, But I started to drink. And one day I got into their wine cellar. And, you know, and they were saving all these valuable wines. And, and you know, and, and I got into their wine cellar. And all I remember is they came home that night. And I had just, I had destroyed things. I had destroyed bottles. I was just in a rage. I was so drunk. I thought what I needed to do was to drown my sister in a pool, you know. And, you know, it was just, it was just a thought, you know. I didn't really mean it. It was just a thought, you know. And the drama and all of that, you know, if you grew up with Miss Perfect, you too would want to drown her, you know. And, and it was just crazy. And I got really crazy. And I remember my sister, the next thing I know is that, that the van pulls up. I'm just in a rage. I'm just going crazy. I'm just destroying everything. And my sister can't control me. The next thing I know is that there's two men they're dressed in white, and and they give me a shot, and they take me off into the little van, and I'm going off to the hospital. And now, that wasn't the first time in my life that I had been taken off with the men in the white suits in the van. There had been a few times before that, and I knew where I was going. And, um, and I remember being in that hospital... It wasn't the first time, and they give you Thorazine, and, you know, and I, at that point in my life, I said, all I want to do is sleep. That's all I want to do is to sleep for a long, long, long time. I'm just tired. I either want to be asleep, sleeping, or drunk. And, um, and the doctors would go, uh-huh, uh-huh, you know, and, but, you know, I left that hospital, and when I went back to my sisters, she said to me, Eva, you can't stay here anymore. You need to go on and get on with your life. Here is some money. Take your things and leave. But you cannot take your daughter. We are going to take her from you. And I looked at her and I said, well, it's about time. And I put all my clothes into hefty garbage bags. I threw them in the trunk of my car. I pushed the car out of the driveway and I got on the freeway and I left. 
And I left the one most precious thing that I ever had, and that was my daughter, and I left her because I was going to get on with my life. And nobody was going to get in my way of my drinking. And it wasn't the drinking. If you had been brought up the way I was brought up, if you had this, that, and the other, if that had happened to you, you would drink as much as I drink. And I landed in, in Southern California in Santa Barbara, and I think it was because I ran out of gas. And I looked at, around in that community, and it looked very safe. And I thought to myself, this looks like a very safe place to be. And um, I went through my phone book, and I found a friend that I knew from the 60s that lived in that town. And sure enough, I, I found her. After a few days, I found her. She took me in. It was really wonderful because... Um, uh, she was into theater and a very creative person and, and, uh, was, and, um, had a wonderful place and, and I stayed with her and the wonderful thing was she was a drug addict and, and she had all, and, and lots of booze in her house but she really wasn't so much into the booze so I, she just said help yourself. <laughs> and, and it was really fun. It was very great, you know, whatever. But I drank and I drank and I drank. And the story goes that, that one day she kicked me out of her house and said to me, Eva, you're nothing but a drunk, and you can't live here anymore. And I remember looking at her and saying, well, you're nothing but a drug addict. And uh, and I went off, and all I remember is there was a period of time when I was living under a laundry table with all my things in my green plastic bags, and I had a piece of foam that I would roll up and pass out on at night. And when I would come to, I would go out on the streets. And, um, you know, thank God it was that community because, you know, I used to go to the bars. I just hung out at bars and I got people to buy me drinks. One day my sister showed up with my daughter and my mother. And they said, you know, it's time for you. This is like a year and a half later. My sister shows up with my daughter and she said, Eva, you need to get your life together and you need to take care of your daughter because she needs you. And they got me a place, they gave me money and helped me find a job. And um, But I could not stop drinking. And my sister left and my mother left and there I am with this daughter and I couldn't face it. I just felt so guilty. I just, I mean, I just wanted to die inside. I just wanted my insides to just, you know. And uh, and I drank a lot. I would plan it so that I would go out after she would come home so I wouldn't have to face her. And then I would go out to parties and to the bars and things. And... Um, for a, this was for days and days and days, and uh, it used to be that I would plan to come in in the morning after she'd leave for school. But one night I couldn't. I couldn't go on. It was like I remember calling my sister one night and saying to her, "I'm so afraid. I'm so afraid. I'm so afraid that if I don't drink, I'm going to die. But if I pick up that drink, it's going to kill me." You know, it was that dilemma. And I was so full of fear. And, uh, I, and I felt the, the remorse, the shame, the guilt, everything was upon me. And, and I'm sitting at this bar, the bar closed, it's one o'clock, and the bartender's kicking me out. 
and nobody had asked me if I wanted to, because a lot of people had after-hour parties, and nobody was offering me, you know, a party after the party. And I just sat there, and, and I called a cab, and I took the cab, and I said, take me to the beach. And he took me to the beach because I had decided that was it. I wanted to end it. And I was going to walk. I decided I would walk into the ocean and drown myself. And uh, the reason I thought that was good, a good idea was because Virginia Woolf was one of my favorite writers. And, you know, she had drowned. Maybe it wasn't the ocean where she drowned. But, but it was the same kind of symbolic thing. And if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it right. You know, so, you know, woman walks into ocean, butterfly deeps, you know. And, uh, and so, and I meant it. I really, really meant it, you know. And I remember the cab dropping me off. I walked down to the beach. I dropped to my knees. For some reason, I dropped to my knees. And I said, God, help me go through with this. I have to do this. I can no longer go on. This is the best thing for everyone. Please just take care of my daughter. She will be so much better off, and I really meant it. When I got up from my knees, the cab driver was standing there, and he said, Lady, I'm not letting you go. I'm not leaving you. He said, uh, you know, obviously he saw that something was wrong with the picture, and he said, Listen, Stay with me in the car tonight, you know, and tomorrow morning when the liquor store opens, I'll buy you whatever booze you want. And it was like, I completely forgot the suicide mission. (laughs) Completely. I got in the cab. I was in and out of a blackout. I don't remember anything about that night except that suddenly it was the morning and I'm walking in the house and I've got a brown paper bag under my arm. And there's a six-pack of Mickey's Big Mouth and a bottle of Tangeray Gin. And my timing was off that morning because what happened as I walked in the house down the long hallway is my daughter was walking towards me with her books and her lunch pail. And I panicked. And she stopped me and she said, Mommy, I want to talk to you. She said, Mommy, you're an alcoholic and you need help. Call AA. And she handed me this little piece of paper folded up. And I took that piece of paper, and I went into a room. And the reason I went into a room is that's where I used to go every morning. Every morning when I would come home, I would go into a room because her room was so pretty. It was so sweet. It was clean. She had these beautiful Priscilla curtains, this gold tropical fish tank, and all her dolls, and her brass, shiny brass bed, and all her stuffed animals, and... You know, it was the only place I felt safe. But not only that, I couldn't even go in my bedroom anymore because one night in an alcoholic rage, I had broken all the windows. I had broken all the mirrors. I had trashed my room because that's what I used to do when I would get drunk. And I don't know why, but that's what I did. And I went into a bedroom and I sat at the edge of the bed and I hung on to that piece of paper and I broke down and I cried. And I'll never forget it, sitting at the edge of the bed, crying, just sobbing like a baby. And I said, God, help me. I can't even die. Help me. Help me to live. And the next thing I know, and I don't know why, but I picked up the phone and I called Alcoholics Anonymous. I had no idea who I was calling or why I was calling, but I called. 
And I don't know why, but I did that. And uh, all I know is that, thank God, you know, I'm so grateful that Alcoholics Anonymous is a fellowship of people that are into action. Because that morning, there were quite a few AA members in that community that had signed up to volunteer to answer the phones at central office. That for several, several years, people had been putting money in the in the basket so that central office could stay open. And so that phone line could keep ringing because that's who I called that morning. And it was an, an AA member that answered the phone and said, Alcoholics, good morning, Alcoholics Anonymous, how can we help you? And I don't know what I said or what happened, except the next thing I know is I'm talking to, to some women. And uh, I, what struck me was it was very awkward and it was very strange and they were very, very sweet. And it was really odd to me. And finally I'm talking to this woman and she was very different from the others. She was from Texas and she had this Texas drawl. And she said, darling, how are you doing? And I was, wow, somebody wants to know how I'm doing. And you know how it is, you know, suddenly people are interested, you know, and you go, wow, nobody's, you know. And so I'm talking to her and, and she's just the most fascinating person. And like she's not talking about anything. But in the meantime, I've already opened a few beers and I've already, you know, opened that bottle of gin because like now, you know, the party's on, right? I have no idea these people are sober, you know. And, and, but I'm talking to Katie and Katie said, says, this is what I heard in the conversation. She said, honey, what are you drinking? And I thought, how does she know? <laughs> I, I was just astounded. And and I go, well, I thought my Nikki's Big Mouth and my Tangeray gin. And she goes, and and she hooked me. She hooked me. And, you know, and so then in the conversation, and this is what I, I honestly heard her say, honey, I'd really like to get to know you. Why don't we get together and have a drink? But what Katie said, she said, is I'd really like to get to know you. Why don't we get together and have a cup of coffee? <laughs> now, I had no idea at that time that Katie had over 30 years of sobriety and that Katie had literally 12 steps, everyone in that community. Katie had a gift for saying the right thing to the right person and you never heard her say it to anyone else. Seriously, she had this gift that she can talk to the drunks. Everybody in Santa Barbara knew Katie. The winos on the street, when she'd walk down the street, they'd all hide. You know, <laughs> she had this weird magic, you know, she was incredible. God bless her. God bless you, Katie. Well, anyway, Katie said, I'd like to get to know you. So why don't you take a nap? Here's where I am, blah, blah, blah. Well, it was like, you know, when you read Bill's story and Bill talked about Ebby, how when Ebby called and he was going to come over and Bill says it was like the oasis. It was like suddenly there was something exciting to look you know, something like, you know what I'm talking about, right? That's exactly how I felt. It was like, wow, a friend. I finally have a friend again, you know. And 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 I was excited, and so I passed out. And then, and then, you know, put the covers over my head, got in fetal position, my, you know, usual, you know, and passed out. And then I woke up, and I remembered, oh, I've got to find this woman. And uh, I... I 
got myself as best that I could get dressed up. I have to share with you, too. Halloween's my favorite holiday. My, my favorite. But I would celebrate Halloween 365 days of the year. I also would go to my friend's costume shop every day to pick my outfit. And it was amazing. I could be whoever you wanted me to be. And uh, so I got myself all dressed up, and I went to look for Katie. I threw my last beer in my purse, and I went off. Katie told me to call a cab. I called a cab, and I went to find her. And uh, I remember I dropped the green bottle. It smashed on the street, but I said, Katie will have more. <laughs> and uh, I found Katie, and all I remember was that I knocked on the door. There she was at the center. I knocked on the door, and she opened the door. And I just stood there, and she said, Eva, it's good to see you. And I'll never forget. I don't know how she knew who I was, but I will never, I really don't. But I'll never forget that. And she was this older woman, and she just put out her arms and said, come here, darling. And she just hugged me and held me. And she said, honey, everything's going to be all right. You're safe. You're home. And she sat me down, and I just, cried. I just cried in her arms. I sobbed like a baby. And she sat me down and she shared her experience, strength, and hope with me. She was just amazing. Just amazing. And it was like she knew exactly how I felt, you know, and talked about raising her kids and how she drank and everything. And I just sat there and eventually what happened is I started to shake and then I started to rattle and then I started to roll. And, uh, I was admitted into the emergency hospital because I started to go through heavy DTs. And she was worried that I wasn't going to make it through. And so I was strapped to a bed. I was shot with Valium. And Katie said that as soon as they released me from the hospital, not to drink, but to pick up the phone and call her. I think I was in there, I don't know how long. I really don't, you know, I don't know whether it was 24 hours. But when they released me, I went home and I called Katie, and Katie asked if I was sober, and I said yes, and she said, I'm going to send somebody to take you to an AA meeting tonight, and uh, and I remember my daughter was really excited, and my daughter was 11 then, and, um, and I remember I didn't drink, I didn't want to drink, and uh, the doorbell rang, it was about 7 seven o'clock it was an eight o'clock meeting and I remember my daughter jumping up and down she's here she's here and she ran and got me and um and I remember looking down the hallway at the entry and there's this woman standing there and she had blonde hair bleach blonde hair white and these blue eyes and the, you could see the whites of her eyes it was amazing and she had this impeccable tan and she looked like it goes to Hawaii and and I thought to myself Look what they sent me, you know. I mean, you know, I have nothing in common with kids that goes to Hawaii. You know, you know, the arrogance, unbelievable. But I went off, and one of the things that really impressed me was when I got in Katie's car, in Dinah's car, the door opened, you know, you didn't have to bungee cord it, you know. You got in, you know, she she turned the key, the car hummed, you know. My car, I had the alcoholic car where you'd have to push it out the driveway, push it down the street, I lived in a little hill, get it, and then jump in, slam the door, bungee cord it, and pop it in gear to get it going. It was wonderful. 
And and it was and it was a BMW. Now the sunroof the sunroof you could no longer close. So in the winter you you drove with an umbrella or a raincoat with a hood. And uh you know, and the back fender was falling. It was just something, but it was a BMW, you know. And but Dinah's car really impressed me. She'd stop at the stop sign. She'd wait for the light to. I just couldn't believe it. And then she would say, "One day at a time, easy does it." And I thought, oh, this is unbelievable. We got to the church where the AA meeting was held. Immediately, I got suspicious. Everybody's smiling, laughing. There's a crowd, and I wanted to leave. I wanted to leave. I just, uh, you know, church, weird people laughing, and and but I didn't want to hurt her feeling. Now, by the way, Dinah only had six weeks of sobriety. Katie believed that the day you walk into Alcoholics Anonymous, no matter how sober or still drunk, you can be of service somehow. Everyone, the moment they walk in, can do something for somebody else. She really believed that and lived by that. So there was Dinah, you know, with this newcomer. And Katie saw me, pulled me to the front of the room, sat me in front, surrounded me with billions, trillions of women. There were so many people in that room. It was unbelievable. And I started to feel more and more uncomfortable. But the amazing thing is I didn't leave. I sat there. I didn't want to hurt Katie's feelings. And I really couldn't leave anyway. They weren't going to let me. But this, the wonderful thing that happened that night was the meeting began. And the speaker that night was a man by the name of Mike N. He's up at the big meeting with Katie now. But uh, he talked about his alcoholism. He, dra- he talked about how he drank, how he felt, you know. And uh, I just... Everything he said, I identified with. He talked about going to the bar, sitting at the bar, looking in the mirror, and he would turn into the, you know, from the frog into the prince. And I just thought that was incredible because that's exactly what happened to me. It would happen to me. And I knew one thing sitting in that room that I had what Mike had. I don't know about the rest of you, but I really felt I had what Mike had. And that night, Dinah bought me my first big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I took it home. But one thing happened is at the end of the meeting, you close with the Lord's Prayer. And then I realized this is a religion. And not only that, but I was born and raised Catholic, and we don't add that little bit at the end of the Lord's Prayer. And so I went home thinking that AA was a religion, and but that's okay. You know, you need it. But, you know... I read the big book, and I was fascinated by it. I couldn't sleep for days, and I read chapter 11, and that's when it really struck me in chapter 11 where it talks about the normal drinker, that when they drink, they experience, you know, conviviality, colorful imagination, a feeling that life is good. I read that, and immediately I realized, "Uh uh-uh, that doesn't happen to me. But then I read about the alcoholic, you know, after that, and I said, that's me. And I told myself, that's it, I'm an alcoholic. First step, I'm an alcoholic. But what happened is, is that I didn't, I convinced myself I didn't really need God, but self-knowledge was going to do it for me. Now, when I look back at that, in fact, I really convinced myself that, see, once I know what's wrong with me, I can treat it. And I'll go to AA. So what I did was I went to AA when I felt like it. Not every day, but I went. <clears throat> and I lasted 20 days sober without drinking. 
And on the 20th day, it was pre-Halloween, it was October uh, 29th, 30th before Halloween, my favorite holidays coming up. And uh, I'd heard about this party on Halloween and I decided, you know, I'm going to go to this party and I'm not going to drink. By the afternoon, I had said, yep, I'm going to go to the party and maybe I'm not an alcoholic. When I got walked into the party, there was a full bar, there was a, a bartender, and I remember saying to myself, looking at the bottles, you know, I'm going to have one drink, one glass of wine, two glasses of wine, I'm going to skip the tangeray, and I'm going to act like a lady, and I'm going to have some fun. Well, you know what happened. is uh, I'd also convinced myself, too, that, see, I have stayed sober on my own for 20 days. And see, I don't need God, and I don't need AA. Therefore, I must not be an alcoholic. And uh, I picked up that drink. What happened is I took that glass. You know, as soon as I drank it, the, the physical allergy kicked in, and the phenomenon of craving took over. And I had another, and another, and another. Three days later, I came to, and I was in the intensive care of the hospital, and I was dying from alcohol poisoning. And I was all hooked up to life support. And I never, ever, ever want to forget that. I don't remember too much what happened in those three days, but I nearly killed myself with alcohol. And, um, I, I mean, for a long time I, I was close to death. But uh, I came to and, and, you know, all I know is that I surrendered. I, I, I surrendered. I, I admitted to myself I'm powerless over alcohol, and I asked God to help him. And I really, truly realized I was crazy. I was insane, and I needed God's help. And I called AA. My family, of course, was 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 there, and my daughter. But I did call AA, and I said help. And I called Katie and said help, and Dinah and said help. And um, but they didn't release me from the hospital. They they transferred me to the psychiatric ward because I was going to be transferred to. Um, Camarillo State Hospital. The doctors decided with my history that I really needed to be locked up. But uh, I remember, I don't know how it happened, but I remember sitting in the psychiatrist's office at the hospital, the county temporary lockup, and just begging with him, please, please, I'm really not crazy. I'm just an alcoholic, and I need to get to AA. They can help me. And all I know is that he, I, I don't know if I convinced him or what, but he finally said, Eva, I will release you on the condition that you get treatment. If we find that you are not getting treatment, you're back. And, and I meant it. I really, truly meant it. I needed what you had. And I, and I remember that a member picked me up at, when I was released from that lockdown, and that's the last time I've had to be in one of those places. And I was taken from that hospital to an AA meeting, and um, they found a bed. The AA members found a bed for me in a recovery home for women, but it would be two weeks before that bed would be free. And the AA women in AA babysat me for two weeks and took care of my daughter, and they found a home for my daughter to stay at to be there near me, and it was really wonderful. I went in that recovery home that really, really 
encouraged the women there to go to a lot of AA meetings. And every day, three times a day, AA members would show up at that recovery home in their cars. They'd line the street and we'd get in those cars and we'd be taken off to different meetings. And it was really wonderful. I fell in love with AA. I sat in the back and I really wanted what you had. And, you know, the miracle happened for me. I remember six months sitting in the back, you know, in the room. I used to, like, sit in the meetings and I would, like, shake and I would always think, God, I'm just going to hit the ceiling. It was very hard. It was very hard to sit still. It was very hard to concentrate. But you helped me, you know. You helped me with my coffee. You sat there and you said, this too shall pass. Keep coming back. You know, a day at a time, Eva. And one day at six months, I remember looking. I used to hold the chair because I really thought I was going to hit the ceiling. I would just hold the chair. And I remember one day looking down. I had about five, six months of sobriety. And I looked down and my hands were no longer shaking. And I was no longer gripping the chair. And I was actually focused on the speaker. And I just remember feeling really warm and fuzzy. And I just closed my eyes and I said, God, thank you. And what I meant to say was, God, thank you for doing for me what I couldn't have done for myself. And it was like it was over, you know. The battle was over. And I sat there. And the wonderful thing was there were a lot of old-timers around me. I got a home group and I got into service early on. My first most wonderful commitment of all of sobriety was washing ashtrays and coffee cups. I'll never forget that. And later on it was getting into general service. I was one of those AA members that had a lot of arrogance and thought that AA had a lot of potential and just wait till you put me in the position of influence, how I'm going to change things. And, you know, it's amazing. It's amazing. You know, your patience and love and tolerance, I mean, it's, it's incredible. But, you know, I, I learned a lot. I learned a lot because I had some very patient teachers and some people that were willing to show me. And um, and then I got involved in general service, and that was another incredible experience for me because I finally, for the first time, I remember going to my first area assembly, and you were all talking about the good of AA and the future of AA, and it was really strange. It was my first area assembly. I was in total fear. It was a workshop. There was our trustee was there, our delegate was there, and it was the first time I'd left Santa Barbara. And I was a year and a month sober. I had gotten to be the alternate GSR, but then the GSR moved, and the group said I needed to be the temporary GSR. So there I am in an air assembly, and you're all talking. And we had this round table, and you were talking about primary purpose, singleist purpose. You went around the table. Everyone shared, and then it was my turn. And I said a sentence. I said two complete sentences, and then I don't know what I said. I panicked. And I got up, I just panicked, and I ran out of the room, and I cried. I cried outside of the school, and I just said, this isn't for me. I just need to go back to my home group, just wash ashtrays, da-da-da, this is not for me. But all I know is that I was out there crying, and the delegate and the trustee and other people came out and, and just came to me, came up to me and said, Eva, it's all right. We're so glad you're here. Thank you for what you shared. We need you. Let me tell you what it was like when I was a GSR, what it was like my first area assembly. And one by one, they just shared their story. And they said, you're not alone. You're not unique. You belong with us. We're just drunks. And I went back in the room, and it was just incredible. 
The area assembly opened up in the afternoon and there were mics all over the room and one by one AA members got up to the mics and shared about, you know, the future of Alcoholics Anonymous. They talked about AA as if it was something so precious, as if it was something so, like, not just a gift you put on the shelf and, you know, pull down and blow the dust off and, you know, it's something that every day you practice. And and the way they talked about AA, and I was in awe because I was still, even though I have, I've learned to be of service, I've done the steps to the very best of my ability, I've done exactly everything to the best of my ability, there was still a lot of self-obsession. And I looked at people and I heard you talk about AA. You weren't getting up there and telling other people what you've done, you know, or what bad day. You were talking about AA for the good of all of AA. And I sat there and I said, how can they think about something other than themselves? How do they do that? And I thought in my mind, I just want to stop thinking about myself, you know. I, I want to be like these people. You were my heroes. You really were my giants. And I sat there and I said, you have what I want. Someday I want to be able to know what it's like no longer to have these voices about me, 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 me. I want to be able to get up and say, well, tradition da-da-da is best for AA, not what's good for me, but what's good for all of AA. And I got in that car heading back for the four-hour drive to Santa Barbara, and I said to everybody, when's the next one? And uh, I never missed one after that. And I just showed up. I just suited up and showed up like my sponsor told me to do and made myself available to be of service. I learned a lot in Alcoholics Anonymous. I had a wonderful guide that, you know, I call my sponsor, who really, truly was there. And, um, you know, in sobriety, I've, I've experienced some very hard things and tragic things. And uh, But, you know, I never had to pick up a drink. And every time when I really thought things were really bad, somebody would share at a meeting something far more worse than what I have just experienced, as tragic as it was, you know. And your example has always just been so incredible. And uh, there was an old-timer that used to walk in the rooms. It used to drive me nuts. He would whistle, and he would go, Zippity-doo-dah, zippity-day, My, oh, my, what a wonderful day. And he'd go on, and he'd sing. And then he'd share, he'd share, and he'd go, my, it's so good to be on the sunny side of the street. Why don't you join us on the sunny side of the street where there's plenty of sunshine for everyone? And, you know, it used to drive me nuts, but I loved it. I loved it when he said it because, see, I'd been living in the dark for so long. And that sounded so good and so positive. As corny as it was, it sounded so good. And the interesting thing is one day at an area assembly, I'm sitting there and I'm humming, zippity And then, you know, I could get up to the mic and I would read and I would just, you know, a lot of it was I would emulate you, you know, and then I learned. And it's been an incredible journey in Alcoholics Anonymous. And, you know, none of this, I, none of this I've done on my own. Absolutely none of this. The fact is, is that there's a power greater than myself that is really has a much greater picture than I am possibly capable of seeing. And, you know, I just suit up and show up. And it's really, truly in my sobriety been, I just want to be where I'm supposed to be. 
because where when I'm where I'm supposed to be, not where I think I'm supposed to be, but where I'm you know, supposed to be, it feels so good because things just feel so good. I no longer have to force manipulate all of that. It just feels so good to trust and have faith. And um, the fact that I'm working now for Alcoholics Anonymous, I, I don't know how you get from there to here, but uh, I don't question it anymore. It's a real gift and it's a real joy. Working for Alcoholics Anonymous is, is incredible, but I want to share with you, it's not 12-step work. It is, I am a paid employee. I'm here to, I'm there to serve you. It's your office, it's not my office. But when I leave the office and I go to my home group, that's when the 12-step work happens and the magic still happens. But it's wonderful to work at GSO. I'm currently on a very exciting assignment, the international assignment, and I've had some wonderful trips this past year. Um, I was in Cuba last January for their 7th AA anniversary. I was in Belarus for their 10th. I've been in South Africa, some wonderful places and some wonderful opportunities. And, you know, I have to pinch myself because I cannot believe this is my life. And, you know, it's just, God, wherever you want me, that's where I want to be. It's, you know, this just happens. It happens. And uh, I want to share with you one little thing because I really want you to know that it's because of your commitment. It's because of your 12th step. It's because you really want to help the drunk. Four weeks ago, I got an email from a physician from China who emailed um, because he had just gotten permission from the administration to start the first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous in China. And he was emailing to thank me for sending the literature that came just in the nick of time. And, um, you know, I'm just the, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just, I just do the job. I'm just the one that, that makes the letter and puts the, you're the one that made that possible. There's been a group of AA members in California because I really think that these AA members really deserve, you know, they're the ones that have been making these trips to China to carry the message. And finally the seed was planted. And this physician took a real interest among five physicians to take an interest in recovery. And um, he was the brave one to actually start the AA meeting and get permission. And, you know, it's just the beginning. In this email he shared about how this wonderful group of 10 or 15 patients, and one of them was discharged. That I got this email about a week ago, so now it's maybe four or five weeks. And he said, in one patient we released with two weeks of sobriety, and he comes back to the meeting. And one day I asked him why he keeps coming back. And the patient said, because I love it. It makes me feel good. And when I come home, my family says they love how my life has changed and how it makes them feel. And, you know, that's Alcoholics Anonymous. And and where would we be had there not been someone else before us? You know, it really is just about passing it, it on. You know, I hate to bring up the thing about the basket, but when that basket goes around, please know how far that 12-step reaches. We've just celebrated our 65 years of, you know, anniversary. How wonderful. 
But I hope that I never, ever forget that somewhere in the world, right now, some country is lighting their first candle. You know, our work isn't over. And uh, I just want everyone to feel the way I feel. Don't you? You know? And thank you, and I love you all.